On today's episode, I chatted with Joelle Taylor, who is a poet. I love poetry personally, but it can often feel like something that is so posh and far away from how most of us consume culture. It, for me, evoked memories of Shakespeare and Byron in school and not often something that is relatable. But Joelle is so deeply relatable, so deeply human, and someone who really digs into, in this conversation, how poetry is so essential, how art is so essential, especially in dark times, especially when we feel like our voices don't matter or the work we're doing doesn't matter, and how art can be a way of finding and forming and shaping community and moving forward together. This conversation left me surprisingly inspired, as they often do, because Joelle made everything she was talking about feel so relatable, so real, so easy to access for any of us, whether we are award-winning poets like she is, or just people who are trying to engage with the world around us for the first time. I hope you enjoyed this conversation as much as I enjoyed having it. So to get us started, we don't like to define people, we let people define themselves, introduce themselves, how they want to be known. So how do you want to introduce yourself? Um, I'm a poet and an author. I write things. That's it, really. There are right. about- <laughs> yeah. How did you end up? Give us the, the journey of like teenage Joelle and how did you end up being a person who write things, writes things for a living and talks about that? Yeah. I mean, it's a really interesting sort of um, question because I was the last kind of person you'd think. I'm not from the kind of background with any sort of real access to the arts and from a very working class community in northwest of England. But from a very small child, one of the great things that my parents did was they read a lot of horror books and sci-fi and obviously they left them around the house. So from a very young age, even though there was a lot of chaos, shall we say, going on around me, I had a book. And so I had this implicit understanding as a child that a book isn't just paper and words, but it's a door and it's a window. You know, and you can travel the world just by sitting completely still. So just from learning that, and I'm talking maybe five or six years old, started reading very difficult books because I was trying to, I was trying to escape. I was trying to hide in some kind of way. Um, and so I, I knew from being a child I wanted to write and publish books. But as I grew older, I wanted to be a musician, you know, and I, and I learned to play guitar and bass and I was in a few bands, mainly punk bands, and, and I got okay, but I was never absolutely brilliant, and as part of it, as I was doing the kind of, the music, I just kind of dropped the music and kept the lyrics, and I realised what was really important to me was always what was being said. I mean, I love music, we all do, but do I want to spend my life playing music, you know, in this kind of way? Um, if you don't, I think some people have a real... I don't like it when we talk about being gifted because it's not that. People are interested in something and then they graft at it and they work really hard. Some people do are, you know, really adept at music. But for me, it was always like a real hard struggle to make any proper kind of melody or sound that wasn't that really laboured in some way. So that's how I did it. And, and there were people around me in the 80s um, who I was following through the music business, this new generation of of poets emerged, like Benjamin Zephaniah and uh, Linton Kwesi Johnson and Jean Binter Breeze, Jules, and these were kind of really incredibly powerful figures to me. They were sort of glamour, in a very working class glamour kind of way, very punky sort of way. They signalled absolute liberation and freedom. Because um, back then, you know, in the early 80s, late 70s, still very unusual for a woman to do what we do, to, to be spoken word artists or poets um, and take to the stages. Sorry, I've really, really talked a lot. But that's basically a journey, a journey towards the mouth and the hand. Chris, don't apologise for telling us your story. That's why we want you here and that's why you're here. Um, so please talk. Um, but it's really interesting that you made the comparison to music and lyrics because I was going to ask about like, I love poetry, but it feels very, and this is maybe my own bias, but it's always felt like it's had like a whiff of like snobbery associated with it. Like to become a poet has always felt like not a thing that is accessible or that real people do. But music is so accessible, right? Like yeah. music is pop culture all around yeah. us. And poetry just feels like... Yeah. And, and that is so interesting because this is exactly what people think. 
you know, that you can't talk, I, I believe you can't talk about poetry without talking about class and talking about race. It's really, really important. But let's look at the history because poetry was the music. You know, it's a kind of music and it belonged to everyone. And because it's so powerful, it then gets appropriated by an elite and turned from being a sort of thing that everyone can do and a, and a, a larger an oral form, a verbal form, and making it into this form where only a certain number of people could even write. You know, and so it, it kind of contained it because it's it's a weapon, it's a bomb, it's something very dangerous. When when somebody's able to express themselves beautifully, a single moment in their lives, everything becomes political because that person, you know, is um, creates this personal intimate cinema that changes worlds. The tiniest piece of writing can do that. One of the most important things for me. During the during my career, and I, this is literally what I've done my entire life. Um, is that my whole life? I thought that poetry is the answer, and only now do I realise it's more more than that. Poetry is the question, so that's where a lot of the politics lie within it. You know, I mean, in terms of like poetry as activism or artivism, if you like and all kinds of writing, all literature is artivism. You know, there is a, a real sense of curiosity being at the heart of it all. You know, and when I started, and certainly spoken word, we get this. So you were mentioning earlier that poetry's got the kind of elite label. Well, the opposite of it is spoken word or slam poetry, i.e. poetry of the marginalised and the underrepresented. Poetry where we built our own stages and got up there on, on those stages and, and built a community. So in spoken word and slam, the form is not just what is written and then what's performed, but the whole damn room. Everybody in that space is that poem in that moment and it's constantly being rewritten, you know. And the reason it's obviously looked down upon with a great deal of snobbery, it's considered the fairly stupid second cousin of real poetry. Um, but it has such... But it's a poetic in itself. Performance is a poetic. Connection in a room is a poetic. You know, and sure enough, I agree with the fact that we you know we start with self-expression. And that self-expression might be a very intimate personal thing, or it might be a much wider political thing. But for self-expression to really work, we have to then get into craft, which takes years and years and years. And the very best spoken word artists and slam poets in the world are now going on to win the Beige and Literary Awards. You know, so it's um I do like, you know, it's 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 the weirdest club, poetry. It's the only club that tries to limit its membership. You know, everybody else is trying to expand. Yeah. Poetry, well, I don't really think that's poetry, do you? You know, um, so it's a very interesting thing. Very interesting. And it's interesting, you know, in terms of tiny revolutions, every poem is, is a tiny revolution for someone. Yeah. You know, you're well aware of the holistic power of poetry that, you know, a lot of people, including myself, come to it through a sense of, you know, unhappiness yeah. or a need to talk about something. Um, you move from there. It moves on and changes. And it's this kind of, there's a really great line, but I think it's called by Richard Feynman or Feynman, who was the guy, a big physicist. And he wrote this line that said, if you understand quantum physics, then you don't understand quantum physics. And I feel the same way about poetry and its potential. And, you know, it's true every time people from a, a more marginalised community, whether that's class-based or race or gender or sex or whatever, um, there is a new buckling down. There is a new attempt to say, well, that's not really poetry, is it? And it, there's all these panels in Cambridge and Oxford about is, should poetry be accessible? I mean, what a question. It's like, should, I, yeah. should you be able to understand what I'm saying? Yeah. Yes, you should. So, yeah. It's wild that that's a question. And going back to something you just said, which just stayed in my mind of how the, the room is the poetry, right? The room is the poem. It's not just the poet who's performing, but it's also the space created. Because I was going to ask you about so much of like that elitism from where I sit probably also comes from like a sense that there are gatekeepers, right? The people who decide what to publish and all of that. But there's a reclaiming of that when the poetry becomes for us and in the room. And it's not about getting it 
out there through other people's means and mechanisms and there's something so powerful in that yeah and crucially sorry i keep doing that because a fly keeps dive bombing me exactly that those same people who were the sort of young rebels um are now have now progressed into forming their own clubs like outspoken i'm like a co-curator host of outspoken um with some other poets and musicians who i'll talk about later and um, when we started, we were absolutely renegades, we were absolute mavericks. But now, Anti Nexaguru, who, who founded this, has set up several initiatives that are aimed at, you know, working with working class poets and are aimed at tackling the lack of plurality within, you know, within poetry, within the narratives that are offered within poetry. So it's a really interesting thing happening where. Those who are the most marginalised have now come into the centre of the page. And I imagine, like, the ones coming after us will look up at us and see us as the kind of the bad gatekeepers, the terrible humans, you know. But I think we just do what we can to lay infrastructure. Like, we come from, I come from a generation when nobody mentored me. It didn't exist. That's a posh thing. I happens to posh people. Um, I never met a poet in school or a writer in school. I never went to see um, a theatre show, you know, until I was way in my 20s. So it's important that we lay these ground roots. Ground roots? Whatever they're called. Ground roots. We lay the... Whatever I'm talking about. It's important that we create these avenues for people to connect and to develop and take over what poetry is or what this thing is, because it's powerful. It's really, really powerful. And you said that you didn't have any mentors, which is like, I, I don't even know where one would find a poet and be like, hello, can you take me under your wing, please? And like, how does how does someone even do that? But for you to then imagine the world in which this is what you could do, I'm curious about what it was, what was it like? Were you just very like sure-minded in that I can do this and I want to do this, so I will? Was it more of just oh, actually, the music, the melodies aren't working for me, so I'll see what happens if I strip the melody and, and see what happens with, like, pop rock lyrics. No, I think I, I was very, very determined, but tied up with it was not just this class idea. I was very influenced by George Orwell, um, and I was very angry about the way I was treated compared to other artists. I did go to university eventually, and I had completely different experience from a lot of the other kids because they had money, they could go out to dinner, they could eat, you know, they had places they could live, etc. Um oh, I've lost my point now. Could you remind me? The question what was about question mentors was? and how how you even imagined a world in which you would be a poet. So it's really tied up, not just in the art, not just finding myself as a working class writer and kicking against the pricks in that sense, but being a woman. Women didn't do that. So it's highly with feminism. I never saw, the only woman I saw was called Jules, and Jules, she's called now, is a brilliant author. And she was absolutely world-changing for a lot of young women, particularly us young punks, throughout the early 80s, 70s and 80s. Um, but generally speaking, that was it. That was the representation. And it was a very male and masculine scene. So it's tied up with that. Then what, what made it even more difficult and made me more determined was, you know, look at me. I'm um I I'm not just gay, I really look it. And I always have. So it was really hard to get clubs to book me. Yeah. And uh, I don't want to be bitter or sound insulting to many of my contemporaries, but let's just say the more female, beautiful you looked as mm -hmm. a woman, the more they could see you in that yeah. space. You couldn't see you in the space at all. And there were several things said, certainly right back in the beginning, you know, when I'm like 16 years, 17 years old, about showing more cleavage, you know, which is hilarious, you think of me showing more cleavage, Jesus. But, um, you know, so it was, um, I'm stubborn, you know, and I think, I think a lot of artists that are stubborn, that's what it is, it's the relentless stubbornness, the curiosity, the fascination. And then somebody says that you're not allowed to. Are you sure? You know, so that made me, give me a lot of kind of strength and power. Um, and it made me move forward. Um, but because of that as well, because of those experiences, that led me to found Slambassadors in about 2000, which was the first kind of youth poetry slam or on a major scale 
in the UK. It was a London-wide slam. Um, nobody knew what slam was. It wasn't in the UK at all. But we'd heard about it in America and that people were queuing up around the block um, to listen to, to poetry. So we are like, well, let's try the slam thing. And it just blew up and went on. Instead of one gig, it went on for 18 years and became this huge thing, which took on a life of itself. So it's secret of ambassadors is that it was about slam poetry, but had nothing to do with slam poetry. It was about people. It's about what happened backstage, not just what you're saying on stage. It's not just happening, you know, um, reclaiming your voice. It was reclaiming listening, and it's reclaiming the connections backstage. And back in the early 2000s, there was a lot of gang violence. I mean, there still is, but it was a real sort of focus in the media at that time. The postcode wars were happening. So what we had backstage was MPs from local schools, kind of 15, 16, 17-year-olds, who were basically sworn enemies on the streets. But when they came backstage and heard the, the theatre filling up and felt the fear and looked across the room and a sworn enemy was looking the same way and going, you can do it, mate. You can do it. I know I'm scared too. Let's do this. And suddenly, you know, that's the kind of massive transformative effect spoken word and slam poetry can have, particularly, I think, in, in the youth sphere. And it's a real underlying ethic of the spoken word, certainly, scene, the working, more working class, mm -hmm. if you like, a poetry scene that we help one another. The microphone doesn't belong to you. It's a baton. And you pass it on like a relay race. Same with your pen. It's not yours. You know, you pass it on. And in that way, transformative things occur. Worlds change. That's really beautiful also because it's such a spirit of not, I don't like the word generosity there, but it's like a lack of ownership, right? Like it's it's communal as opposed to individual, yeah. which is so powerful. Yeah, and if you'd been at any of those early slams, um, I mean, they were life-changing for yeah. me. And I was just a host. I didn't even really do poems very often. I just organized the thing and, and I hosted all of them and I led the sort of masterclasses to get kids ready to go on stage. The audience was absolutely organic, absolutely a part of the, you know, the room. And, and I set it up like that, you know, and made it really clear that poetry isn't something you sit really quietly to, nodding your head, going, hmm, occasionally. If you like what somebody says, we have things you do. There's the clicking thing, which I know is well cheesy, but brilliant for youth poetry. Um, you know, shouting things out. Suddenly there's interaction between audience and poet. There's, there's an interaction between people. Roger Robinson, who's an amazing poet, calls poetry a bridge between people. No, he doesn't. He calls it out, isn't it? He calls them small empathy machines. A poem is a small empathy machine. And so what we found in those gigs is that that empathy machine didn't just surround one, you know, young boy from the ends or some young girl. It surrounded the entire room, and suddenly there's a live conversation happening. You know, and never, always in those environments, rather, there's a sense that the poem is only completed when the audience is there. They finish it, you know. And I've seen, I've been very privileged to see the most beautiful things on stages and, and, and harrowing, harrowing. But that's part of the stuff of life, isn't it? It's also really beautiful that it, what you're describing feels like space where there's like intentionality and you, you use the phrase reclaim listening as well, where at least the world that we live in right now and world I live in, which is a very like to be online a lot and you have to like scroll through TikTok and Instagram, it doesn't feel like we know how to talk to each other anymore or listen to each other, right? Mm -hmm. We're all very good at like saying our piece and that's like a skill we've all kind of honed is like we know how to perform for a camera the fact that you and I can have this conversation across continents is, is a part of that, right? That we know how to talk through a camera yeah, on the yeah. phone, but we don't actually listen. And it's not it's not something that's like rewarded within the the systems that exist. And it just seems mm. really sad. And like we're losing something really fundamental. Yeah. Well, this is what's so important about clubs like Outspoken. And there are mm. other brilliant music clubs like Bad Betty around the UK. It's because, you know, when we first started, I think it was always quite a popular night, but we struggled, you know, to get like 50 people. And you start with three people in a boiled suite coming to watch you. And now we're selling out South Bank, the resident artists at the South Bank Centre in the Purcell room. 
which you'd think would alter the whole energy. But it didn't. What's happened is the audience have altered the energy of that South Bank space. Mm. So there is, when I'm talking about listening, listening involves doing what I'm doing now. It's There's a lot of movement if you're that kind of person or you might want to shout out. But people literally fill a room, not just to listen to the poetry, which is superb, but because of who else is sitting there in that room and because of the music that will come and because they know they belong. Mm. They belong in that place, you know. Um, and I think if we talk more about these live events that, aren't just music, but our spaces where people, you know, from from every background, from every sector of life could come together and learn more about each other and add to the conversation. And, you know, some of the, um, quite a lot of the audience or other poets will come along because even before I joined Outspoken, and I've been a member something like eight or nine years, um, it, was, it was the University of Poetry. It's where you went because the curation was really strong. And you had the best spoken word artists. And you had the most interesting and intriguing, you know, poets who mainly work on the page. And so each side, if there, should, if there is a binary poetry, if there is, then each side is listening to each other and learning. So the published poets started to get good at presenting their work and started to think about a running order as a show rather than just, you know, sitting reading poems. Um, without clapping, but actually having this sense of, of the impact that poetry is having on the audience in that moment. And equally, the spoken word artists were like, wow, how, what, what did you just do with that metaphor? How did you do that? What is that? And started to learn, you know, and, and in that way, everybody grows. But yeah, I agree with you. In, in every sector, we need to come back to the physical space. This is a, a tool, and it's a brilliant tool. Um, but we're all over-dependent, aren't we? <laughs> it's, yeah, and it's it's a thing of, like, I think about even me and I care deeply about, like, the arts, whatever that means, right? Like, I, I'm a person who engages with the world. And when you tell me that I'm going to have to go and watch a performance, my instinct is, well, I'll have to sit there for three hours and be, like, spoken to, right? Or It's like it's a lecture. I'm like, oh, I don't know if I can, like, sit still for that long. Like, I'm going to need a break. I'm going to need, like, my brain will have to do some work on the side. Like, it's just, it's it's too much of just, like, intake. But what you're describing is also engagement, which is so different. Yeah. I mean, weirdly enough, I'd have to agree with that, <laughs> about that for myself. I think we have a generation of um, undiagnosed ADHD yeah. brains. Yeah who have been retrained by doom scrolling, particularly during COVID and the pandemic, um, doom scrolling so that we can't focus very well. So the good news is, for any listeners out there or viewers, is that quite a lot of the clubs, you can walk around, you know, a little bit, you know, mental. Um, but I, I, guess, I guess I do because I'm the host. So I used to, when we were in the 100 Club, I was able to get off the stage and walk around the back of the club and keep moving. I think that's why I'm into the sort of, um, you have great, you have big breaks, you have a lot of energy expended. Yeah. I think it's, we're in a time where it's extremely difficult to concentrate. It's extremely hard. And, and those of us who concentrate for a living, like writers, are, are equally affected, you know. Um, so yes, back to the physical space and, Try and make nights out fun. If we could make nights out so people could move yeah. more, I think people, a lot more people would come, particularly from my communities. Yeah. I think they'd be more like they could be, rather than do going through what you just described. It made me sweat. It just feels more like I don't I don't know how to describe it quite, but it's it feels more like applicable to our lives as opposed to like this distant thing, right? There's the otherwise there's like a person on stage who is like elevated quite literally. And they have, like, they have yeah. the mic, and there might be seven people, and they, they like, pass the mic between them. But the rest of us are the audience, right? So we are broadcasting, yeah. too. Whereas what you're describing also mm. feels like it has some sense of participation as opposed to just, like, being passive. Yeah. I mean, and participation is not necessarily, you know, call and response yeah. or anything like that. It's feeling in that space you can react in the way that is meaningful to you. And like crying, like like just being laughing inappropriately. That's fine. 
it's all fine because there is a sense when a poem is happening, and poems happen, I think, really, really great poems, rather than be read or performed, they're literally happening in the moment. Yeah, I think there's a, a real sense of connectivity in, in that moment. I think there's also something there if we have this con I have this conversation a lot and we have it a lot here with artists of all stripes of just the world feels like it's on fire, the world always feels like it's on fire, but and then there's like a is art frivolous or is like the pursuit of making things or engaging with it, like is that not doing mm-hmm. important things for this world, right? Like there's a sense of like art and activism are so intertwined. And being a person yes. in the world is also like you can engage with that. But yeah. what you're describing, it feels very essential. Whereas often we hear from young people who will say, and our audience is very young, is like, how can like how how can I be a responsible person in the world, right? And still write my poetry and still make my art. Like, shouldn't I be doing something quote unquote important? Yeah, yeah. And it's a do you know what? It's it's not a young person question. That's a question that we ask ourselves daily, particularly in the current climate particularly you know the first thing you do is you you know you you speak out a little bit as you can but I think what it comes down to is understanding what your role is what do you do that nobody else can hear oh you can write so you can explain what's going on to try and move some other people into coming onto your 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 cause or into questioning the thing more you can leave legacy you don't die. If somebody can write, you never die. And also, politically speaking, like for me, I walked a long way from Accrington to Manchester, which is a bloody long way, hitching, literally to find out what a lesbian was in a bookshop, to go and stand in a bookshop and read. That's world-changing. Somebody wrote it, never knew that that changed, you know, an imp- that made me feel less exiled or more like I belong. Like there was community out there. And that was a, a, a book. A book is a bomb. Art is an incredible bomb. Music. I've seen some Instagram videos of, uh, you know, they do those dual music yeah. things. Um, so you have, and it was just, um, it looked like a soldier, was an Israeli guy, sitting there with a the guitar, and then what looked like a Muslim woman, young Muslim woman with a guitarist. And she started to sing the song about Gaza, and he started crying. And he said that was beautiful. That's as important as 100,000 on the demo, mate. It is. Know what you can do and what you're good at. And you can do, you know, be on the demo too. But what is the, your particular thing? Are you a chef? Well, what can you do with food that's going to change things? So, it, you know, like you call this show Little revolutions that's what revolution is really made of these tiny things um you know and guilt is used by dominant ideology to keep us quiet i think the second question after that is often like a sense of well how do i know what i'm good at right or how do i know that or or is it too little right like say the only thing i can do is and i'm a big believer anything is important right but like say what you do is very much in community, like direct community, right? You're going to impact 20 people and there's a sense of like, but there's millions and billions out there and how can it be enough to impact 20 people? And people get stuck there often of like, well, I could be doing Mm. more or that person on Instagram, they reached 2 million people and I only reached 20 and, ooh, you know, I'm I'm not doing enough. And how do you battle that? So, yeah, I think what it is is that person who works with 20 people inspired 10 other people to work with 20 people each, came up with an idea, a way of being active, way of having real political meaning, and it spread. That's it. I mean, some of us, absolutely, you know, the the real activists among us, absolutely, full force, you know, and and what we need them to lead. So social media gives us a lot of guilt. Why isn't so-and-so doing this? Why haven't you said this? Why did you like that? Why, why, why? You know, and it's, it's really weird. I got really involved in it. I wasn't commenting, but I started to really believe that Twitter X was real. And it's taken me years to realise, no, it's not. It's people exactly like me, really bored. Yeah. 
cause you trouble, you know. Um, so I think I think um, you have to have if you're doing the thing with good heart and good ideas, mm. you just have to have the faith and the trust that someone. It's been my experience that someone will copy what mm. you're doing, and then they've doubled it, and it will just keep happening, and they'll get make it better than you ever did. They'll make it stronger. Do you always have this like strong sense of this is what this is my role in things and this is enough? Like thinking back to 20, 21 year old Joelle, did you ever have that sense of like, I don't know where I fit in in the order of things, but I, I feel like I know for me, I can speak to me as like, a, I've always been, felt a sense of like, I know there's more for me to say or more I can do. And just, and that's often what we hear yeah. from people in their early 20s. Like, yeah. I know there's more, but I don't know how to find my way through it. I mean, this is an interesting thing for me because, like, I think when I was in my early 20s, we knew exactly. There's also something about a, a, a cultural anxiety, which is probably social media based. We've been really looking at ourselves too much, you know, and perhaps as a sense of that, which means that we're too self too aware. Too aware. I mean, I think one of the best things about youth, the most irritating thing, is that the certainty. All the big authoritarian movements, Maoism, Nazism, everything, youth movements, that certainty, but this generation, I mean, there's obviously very, facts, no, it's rubbish. You're out there, you're doing loads of brilliant work. And there may be that of intrinsic self-questioning, that, that kind of anxiety that, that underlies it all. But you're the guys doing stop oil. You're the guys that are really bringing attention to the state of the planet. You're doing brilliant work. It's happening. But in a very difficult environment where, on the one hand, it feels hyper-privileged and uber-capitalism and we're all just shopping. You know, everything we do is shopping suddenly. And on the other hand, it's incredibly underprivileged because of the, the difficulty of connection and self-belief, that constant self-questioning. I think, you know, you begin. In everything we do, most important thing is to begin. If you're going to have a massive impact on policy and climate change, you're going to start with your garden and you're going to build and you're going to build. Don't question yourself because you'll give up. Just do it. Just do it. Nice about that also is like the, I find at least that like as someone who writes as well, the, the blank page, right? Like everyone always says, once you start writing, it gets easier. And it's when you're in your head and worried about which words to begin with or when you have to do the first thing. And we put all this weight on ourselves of like the first thing is going to be the final thing or it'll determine the direction yeah. of everything we do. And so it has to be perfect. Yeah. But nothing is perfect. Yeah. Yeah, I call it page fright because it's the same. It feels to me the same physical mechanisms in place as, as stage fright. Yeah. Same same fear. So uh, the best advice I was ever given, I don't even know who said it, some poet, said begin badly. Just write something terrible. That's all you got to do today. Just write something terrible. And every time I come to the page and I'm working on a project like I have been here, you know, you have a bleak hour or two where you realise you're the worst writer on the planet and you've got absolutely nothing to say for yourself. And then I think, ah, yeah, begin badly. Just write some rubbish. And then suddenly, out of nowhere, you'll get a little stream of something that you mean. And that's where it then begins. And that's where, you know, the, the writing is able to find its feet and grow. It's also the, the thing of, like, what even is good or bad. <laughs> At least that's where I get stuck sometimes. It's like, how do you even define good, right? It's all artificial anyways. And, like, we think a lot about, we talked to a lot of people about the idea of success. And, like, what is success, right? What is good? Who defines it? It truly isn't us. Yeah. Someone else like handed us the culture has handed us a definition and told us this is this is it and you're never going to meet it. Yeah, I think that's a really, really, really fundamental question. What is good? What and you know certainly in terms of when we're thinking about poetry, I remember you know there are certain techniques and certain academic avenues of thought around poetry that I'm like, why are you killing poetry? <laughs> What's happening here? It, it just comes down to beginning because you won't know if it's good. I haven't worked with thousands of people 
I've worked with a lot of people who think they're good, but are really, really beginning. Mm -hmm. And I've equally come across people who um, are beginning and have it really good. Not perfect, but they've got an eye. So I think if you want to really know what's good, poetry is cinema and your pen is a camera. That's how you do it. You've got to take somebody into that space, this confusing arena, which is both dramatic and intimate in the same moment, and tell the truth or truth or honesty. Find some honesty in it. Mm. So if you're writing about um, a particular event that's happened to you, go into the room with, as a camera. Watch what happened from the outside. Now do a different angle. Now be inside the body. Now make it about somebody else. Play. We don't play. Because as well, spoken word in particular, and, and, and what I think of as live, visceral poetry, has a very confessional element and it's got very, it's very emotional. Um, but it doesn't, it, you know, it, it can develop, it can grow from that moment. Um, yeah, I think uh, I, just, I just blanked out again. Oh my God, wrong with me. No, Sorry. it's fine. Um, you were talking about the importance of play, and I'm curious if you could say more about that, because that is something we don't talk about enough. I feel like everything is always so serious. The heart of all art is risk and play. And when we're in poetry, um, as I was saying earlier, because we come from this kind of confessional poetry background in spoken word, slam, it's all very emotionally based, we forget that it's created via the imagination. We think of it as rooted in the heart of the body in this way. But it it you can you can it's not. It doesn't have to be your true life story. You can play with the idea, play with, like I said earlier, the angles, play with the light, play with whose story you're telling. You can be awful. You can kill people you just have a conversation with. You can do anything you like or play. And when you get stuck, play hard. And then when you've finished your poem, here's a great game to play. Keep putting the poem down. So if you've written 12 lines, tell the same story in six. Now do it in three can you do it in one? By the time you get to one line, you've probably written a very strong, yeah. power-moving metaphor, you know, that, that a lot of people in the room are going to connect to. And play is vital to all art. You will not progress without it. And it's, it's terrifying, particularly if you've got commissions to meet and you've got the questions that you've got in the back of your head all the time is, am I good? Yeah. What is good? Will I... Am I doing the right thing? All of that, you know, um, you must experiment. But you need to be serious about art because you, all art, well, no, depends where you come from, I guess. But um, certainly for me and working class artists of various mm -hmm. kinds, we all come from a place where we've done an apprenticeship of poverty. So you've been homeless, you've been, or you've been sofa surfing for much, for, you know, significant parts of your life you've had no money to eat but all the way through you kept your eye on what you wanted to be and for me it was a writer and the performance aspect came out of the writing as a as a working class dyke poet um no one else was, no one was going to buy my work I had to get on the stage and and show it share it with people try to get them in that way it's very scary in that situation to play right play is essential but it's all yeah. there's so much at stake yeah, there is, and yet very little come of of any sort of originality comes without this sense of play. Because at this really basic level, play is, are you enjoying writing this? Mm -hmm. Is this, when you were a kid, you used to write things with your mates and then you'd pretend to be in a band and then you'd, you know, you did this thing that you're doing for a living for fun, literally for fun. All over the world, there's hundreds and hundreds of thousands of people who are workers, bank managers, or nurses, or train drivers, and they get home and they put in an extra couple of hours, and they they don't have don't have days off because that's what it is in this country, in this culture. We don't support art, yeah. you know, and we do encourage the idea of art being frivolous because it changes things. So they need us to think it's not for us. They need us to think it's nonsense. That is such mm. a powerful, powerful thought. It makes me think about like early days of lockdown when 
we all turned to Netflix and there was suddenly this wide conversation of like, of course, healthcare is sustaining us. And also art is sustaining us in a different way, right? We all, we all just needed, needed to escape the world or have someone help us make sense of it. And where do we turn? We turn to art. Exactly. And more than that, what do people do when they couldn't go to work? They sat around and thought, Oh, I always wanted to play guitar. I'm going to do it. Might we might not, you know, we may never go back. It may never come back round again. I'm going to learn to do it. So it's really interesting that people stop themselves being involved in art, whether it's music or or, or visual arts or or you know writing or or dance. And the second they're given a little bit of space, half the world turns into sourdough chefs. Like what was that? <laughs> you know. So what do we do? when we're allowed to do what we want. What is our instinct as individual humans? Art is, and even I find it difficult not to think of art as frivolous because that's my training. But I know it isn't because I've seen what's happened. I've seen what what individual poems can do. Wilfred Owen, C.P. Sassoon, changed the way we thought about war, stopped the draft. You know, they, just by writing about it, tell me lies about Vietnam with Adrian Mitchell, Maya Angelou. Totally, you know, these are just poets, but you know, I, I don't really need to keep going. Margaret Atwood, for God's sake, one book and it empowers people. It's also connection, um, right? It's, I think that there's a, at least like when we, I look at millennials, Gen Z, like young people, there's a sense of, am I, am I able to monetize this? And how can I like get the biggest TikTok following? And the friend who's a poet mm-hmm. and I have started doing a thing where we write each other a poem and post it to each other and the idea being that we don't have to publish it because we both have like so much pressure to use our voice right meaningfully it's it's professional for us and we've lost the wonder of like just someone else seeing you that's a really really important point you've made but the fact that you made the point means that it's okay you know exactly what's going on you all everybody does and we're you know we're in a moment of change and flux um, I think, and I hope it's for good. It feels disastrous, yeah. feels terrible, but somebody's telling me to think like that because all my social media is curated, digital kettling. We're all being put into these little streams and kept there. Why are you making me think that the world's going to blow up? Why are you making me think this? Why is this happening? Why are you showing me this? You're frightening me. That's why. And that's a really great weapon, fear, isn't it? Keep me quiet so I don't go out protesting on the streets because I don't want to lose my job. If I lose my job, I can't pay my way and I'm going to lose my house. And it's really important. So this is why they always go for the writers and for the teachers first. So um, I did a little bit of a study, a tiniest bit. I went to Cambodia and talked to a couple of people out there for for a book I wrote a couple of years ago. So I'm going to talk them, which was um, a, a Cambodian phrase, well, obviously in English version they so the women i was talking to were saying that the very first thing that happened was it was the writers who were arrested and the teachers and then it led on to not just being that but, but actual signifiers of those items so spectacles broken because you're breaking the idea of writing breaking the idea of teaching you know and in all revolutions i mean um, i haven't studied them all but i think it's fairly safe to assume you kill the poets. Look at what's happened in Gaza. Look at, have you been following how many poets have been yeah. killed? They're individually targeted. Mm-hmm. Individually, this is fact, you know. And the universities, the hospitals, but I think you can't doubt the power of art because they don't. The people in control know exactly how powerful it is and what it can do. It's such a, like... It's such a mindfuck, honestly, because we are we are taught to believe that it isn't powerful because it is, right? Exactly, exactly. How do you hold on to exactly. in like in the face of all of this like overwhelming just badness all around us, right? Like, it, like we've talked a lot about there is the sense that it might be manufactured partly to like exacerbate the sense of despair and doom and gloom to keep us where we are. But how do you hold on to hope, given that? From all sides, the narratives are about how our world is on fire. You know, I guess it's it's that word connection. Um, so I wrote a book called Kanto, and it was a book of Kanto and other poems, which is a book about uh, 
butch dyke identity, but essentially really about my friends and, yeah. and growing up. And I've been reading so much social media that I honestly thought the fact that I'm a lesbian and I'm talking about butch um, women as lesbians was going to absolutely get me cancelled. And it was going to be awful in an entire career. And I went out on stage at Heaven Nightclubs, one of the biggest gay clubs in London. And I was very lucky that I'd been, I was on Polari, Paul Burston's Polari show. And I was so frightened. And it was being recorded for Radio 4 as well. And I walked onto that stage and I did the title poem, which lasts 15 minutes. And I thought, you know, you've got to do it. Because every time you come on stage, it does feel a little bit like, right, we've got ready for a fight. You know, got to, I have to win this moment. Um, but you've got a standing ovation because the difference between what I'm reading on social media and what I'm meeting face-to-face is profound. Mm. Profound. I may still disagree with people face-to-face, but they're not maniacs. Yeah. You know? So it's um, that's how I keep hope. I connect with people. Find someone you don't agree with and talk to them. Try and talk to someone. Not a Tory, obviously, because they're absolute cunts, but don't waste your breath. <laughs> um, but <laughs> someone you disagree with and try and find a way of understanding them a little bit. And I think when you write, so I've written a new book called The Night and that's um, telling the lots of different stories. And one of them is a story called um, Pipefish, which is about an incel. And I was researching about two or three years longer, four years ago, I was absolutely appalled by what I Covering, and so I set myself the challenge of loving him, creating a character that I could feel some empathy and love for, so that I could, well, not just understand it, but because how how am I, how are we going to change these guys if we don't really connect with what's going on? How are we going to save women from these absolute maniacs if we don't understand what's happening? You know, because just getting a gun and shooting them all is is uh, just exactly the same bosses, isn't it, going round and round in circles. So that's how art can really impact in that way as well. It was disgusting to write, absolutely disgusting. Really, really didn't like it, made it really weird in the end. So if you read it, think of think of, think of that. My poor, poor years, the most wild stuff. Um, yeah. But it also, that that's something I've done. I've worked in prison a lot. Um, I, and I curated the Kersler Awards this year, which is art created within the criminal justice system and within secure units. Um, but I've worked a lot of schools more, um, in prisons, and one of them uh, was working with sex offenders. And I, I was sexually abused as a child. And when I, I didn't realise they were sex offenders when I first went for my first meeting, and then they told me, and I blew my top. I absolutely freaked out. And then I went home, and as I was telling my partner about it, shouting, it just suddenly occurred to me that I'm having a really extreme reaction. Is this what I need to do? So I went and did some more. Because then there was a brilliant moment. They got to like me, the men. I did a, a series of sort of three or four sessions, and then I did a big ending performance for them where I did a poem about being sexually abused. And that was a moment for them because they liked me. It's quite vindictive of me, isn't it? But, you know, because I genuinely like them as well. <laughs> it's a strange thing. That's not to be in any way a rape apologist. That is to be absolutely like, what is going on in your head? Who are you people? The more you connect with who you are and what your actions have done, the more likely it is that you can never do that again and you can help other men never do that again. I mean, maybe it's all just a Probably. Maybe we should just kill everyone. But um, if you want to kill people, that's that's what your long form novels for. There's there's something so beautiful about just like empathy being at the core of everything you're describing, and just trying to extend that, not that grace, but like that empathy to every other person, which feels like a really beautiful starting point for mm. everything. Yeah, I mean, I think it's that's core of activism, but it's the core of writing. When we're not writing about ourselves. When we move to that phase where we're writing about a wider world with us in it, you know, yeah. and particularly if we're writing fiction, obviously, obviously, it's it's your it's your chief skill. How would it feel mm. if I had three mm. legs, you know, and lived in a cellar for twelve years? 
yeah. what I feel like. And that's a really extreme example because I can't think of anyone that's actually experienced that. Yeah. But, you know, you, you, you know, you connect with the character and try to make them alive because you believe they are yourself. Yeah. And then you need to do that. You need to research their lives. You need to find out. And you will find out things you didn't understand and didn't know. I think Kit DeWall, who's an absolutely blinding writer and thinker, um, she wrote an article where she said, we, you know, don't dip your pen in other people's blood. Like, you know, in terms of particularly being white yeah. and appropriating other stories. And I do feel quite strongly empathy isn't suddenly writing about an experience that isn't yours or, you know, in a, in a way that sounds as though it's you. Yeah. Kind of journalism, of course, of course that's okay. But I sort of, you know, suddenly characterising yourself as a Syrian man right. or right. something, you know, in going through those situations. That's why empathy goes wrong. That's not empathy. That's cultural appropriation. Yeah. <laughs> That's feeling. I feel like I could talk to you forever, but I'm conscious of the fact that we are going to run out of time. So I want to make sure I ask you the question we ask everyone, which is for someone listening to this who's like, think of a younger you or me, right? Someone who's like in their late teens, early 20s and is at that point of I want to do something I feel like we all have a voice but I feel like I want to use my voice with more intention I feel like I want to make art I feel like there's just more out there and I don't know where to start or what to do what is what is what are some little revolutions right like what are the tiny starting points or things that they can do to get going huge thing you can do to get going is to attend an event so if you want to be a poet go to a poetry event if you want to be an artist start going to art galleries and start going to specific um, not big art galleries, but the showings, the queer shows, because there you start to meet the people who will help you know what to do next, because you're all on this curious journey. Yeah. So, so first, connect with other people. Secondly, begin. If you're a poet, go to an open mic, get on the stage, feel the fear, do it anyway. And there, you know, it might not be something that you really want to do, but certainly explore it. And if you're an artist, begin. I don't, you know, it's not my my field but I think it's pretty much across the board you connect with other people first so it's much as coming out as gay come out as an artist Mm. and then commit to it and keep reading read a lot connect with as much work across the world as you can I know you, you rip apart YouTube find all the different performances and just begin and begin badly and end brilliantly just stop. You got this. That is wonderful. Thank you so much. Is there anything I should have asked you that I didn't? No, just that I'd like to mention that my book launch, when I criticise my book launch, my debut novel is called The Night Alphabet, and it's going to be launched at Queen Elizabeth Hall, Southbank Centre, February 16th at 8pm. Please come along. Thank you so much to Joelle for this wonderful conversation. Thank you for listening. To learn more about Joelle, her upcoming book, more of her work, check out our show notes.